I actually uh, recall this part of the story from an excellent episode of Drunk History. Howdy, you are listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McCover. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a political insider who went from a power broker in the governor's mansion to serving as special political advisor to President Woodrow Wilson. Along the way, playing a critical part in America's role in the First World War and in the creation of the League of Nations. This week, we talk about part two of the Texas Kingmaker, Colonel Edward House. But first, what's your favorite non-Whataburger place to get breakfast in Texas? Because we all know, it's Whataburger. But I'm going to throw out one that if you haven't been to San Antonio and they have locations in Austin, you simply must enjoy. And that's Jim's. Jim's, the original San Antonio breakfast house. I have many fond memories of having breakfast there. I can attest to the quality of their food and service. So get yourself to Jim's, San Antonio. Full stop, I win, guys. You can just go home because we're done with this podcast. That's a mic drop. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to go with another place that's in San Antonio. Um, I've only been there a couple of times, but it's probably one of the best breakfasts I've ever had. It's at Mi Tierra. Uh, which is across the street from El Mercado. They have some of the very best huevos rancheros I have ever eaten in my entire life. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And they have chilaquilas and they have that. menudo. Yeah, they're open 24 hours, which is unusual for a Mexican food place, but pretty cool. Um, well, I'm going to say that uh, one of my favorite non-water burger places to get breakfast is a place called Sammy's Restaurant in Castroville. Uh, Castroville's a, a little town just west of San Antonio. Um, it's interesting how all three of us have chosen something around San Antonio this time. But um, usually if I'm eating breakfast in a restaurant, it's going to be on uh, some sort of road trip. Uh, in this case, uh, most likely on our way home from uh, our annual visit out to Lakey, Texas, in the in the Hill Country. Um, a lot of times, uh, we've stopped there with the family before everyone goes their separate ways, and it's just got a a nice uh, small town feel. I mean, it's a pretty busy restaurant, but it's uh, small town big, and uh, it's pretty good. Well, you know, I I know that there's going to be a handful of people that are out there angry at us saying, what do you, you know, blasphemy, and they have a list of places. I'm, I know for a fact there's at least two people in Dallas right now that are yelling at the podcast about, you know, why not Cafe Brazil? Why not Cafe Brazil? They have multiple locations <laughs> and excellent migas and great coffee. <laughs> We're not criticizing them. But, hey, if you've got a problem... Just take to the Twitter and Twitter it because, you know, that's a healthy way to let off some steam. Last week, we talked about the early life and political career of Edward House, a wealthy Texan who'd spent the turn of the 20th century building a powerful political machine that had an unbroken string of successes in electing Democratic governors to the state. House had tired of playing kingmaker in Texas and moved to New York City, seeking to replicate his success with the National Democratic Party. Along the way, he developed a philosophy that Democratic, little d, 
leaders should work to promote various progressive interests for the common people in order to ensure that the status quo remained in power. Howe spent the first decade of the 20th century looking for the right candidate before finding him in the intellectual former president of Princeton University and governor of New Jersey, Woodrow Wilson, who was elected president in 1912. You remember that from your history class. Wilson offered House any cabinet position he wanted in return for the support House had provided securing Wilson's Dark Horse nomination, but House declined, asking only to serve as advisor to the new president. Now, today we're used to seeing special advisor to the president or political advisor to the president in the modern White House. Karl Rove, David Axelrod, Kenneth O'Donnell, Steve Bannon, all of these guys have served as policy advisors or political consultants or special assistants. But in 1912, this was not the norm. Colonel House was the first person to really have that floating, unofficial, official, unofficial role. But his influence with the president at the time was undeniable. In President Wilson's first term, a huge number of reforms were pushed through, which have influence today, including the institution of a national income tax, the abolition of a number of protective tariffs, the elimination of credit and banking trusts in favor of a Federal Reserve, and the push towards an eight-hour workday. Oddly enough, or maybe not oddly enough, all of these things were predicted in the Philip Drew novel, which doc- all of these were predicted in the Philip Drew novel, which Colonel House wrote, that we talked about in last week's episode. Now, Colonel House was employed in his usual manner to round up political support from Congress and from party leaders for the president's political initiatives. Increasingly, however, Wilson began to rely on Colonel House more and more for advice on the political situation in Europe. The previous decade had seen Europe lurch from crisis to crisis as England, France, and Russia seemed on a collision course with the German and Austrian empires. Each crisis had been averted by the diplomatic efforts of the old European upper classes, and in 1913, House tried to play mediator between the two powers he saw as most capable of keeping the peace, Germany and Great Britain. House used contacts he'd made in previous travels to Europe to arrange meetings with both Kaiser Wilhelm and British Foreign Secretary Edward Gray in order to forge an agreement between their empires and the United States in order to forge an agreement between the empires and the United States to be the guarantors of peace in the world. Sadly, this wasn't meant to be. In the summer of 1914, there finally came a crisis that resulted in war. After Austria's Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Bosnia, the European powers collapsed into a rapidly escalating war, and by the end of August, the war was raging from the Black Sea to the Baltic in the east and from Switzerland to the English Channel in the west. Colonel House was dispatched to Europe in 1914 to evaluate the situation. House viewed the war at the time as massive and brutal and recommended that the United States offer to mediate the conflict but was mostly contained to the European powers and didn't need to involve the United States. Some biographers have held that maybe he exaggerated his own accomplishments and engaged in wishful thinking rather than analyze the historic forces in his assessments to Wilson, though. He was also unable to provide an accurate prediction of the actions that Germany would have to take to try to knock England out of the war, which would in fact bring the U.S. into the conflict. In 1914, President Wilson's wife passed away, and Colonel House became his closest friend and confidant. 
providing steady emotional support to the grieving president. However, in 1915, Wilson met and fell in love with a wealthy young widow named Edith Galt. Wilson proposed marriage, but House, misreading the situation, recommended they wait until after the 1916 election, hoping that the president would gain sympathy from voters. Wilson and Galt didn't wait, though, and the new Mrs. Wilson developed a powerful dislike for the colonel and slowly but surely started chipping away at his influence on and access to the president. After German submarines began seeking American merchant ships that were sailing to England and France in 1915, House began to argue with Wilson that retaining a neutral stance in the war would ultimately be impossible. Wilson wasn't willing to go that far, but he did follow House's advice to begin preparing for what was, in his opinion, inevitable. He confided in French Foreign Minister Jules Cambon in 1916 that United States' entry into the war on the Allied side was, quote, inevitable and awaited only a serviceable incident that would cause the American people to rally behind the president's call for war. In the 1916 election, House played a much greater role than he had played in the campaign in 1912. He had no official role in the campaign, of course, yet he planned its structure, set its tone, guided its finance, chose speakers, tactics, and strategy, and not least of all handled the campaign's greatest asset and greatest potential liability, its brilliant but temperamental candidate. Ironically, the catchphrase of the campaign for Wilson was, quote, He kept us out of the war! which House sometimes gives credit for. Privately, he knew war was inevitable. In 1917, the, quote, serviceable incident occurred. At the same time that Germany resumed unrestricted submarine warfare, the Kaiser offered a deal to the government of Mexico, proposing that Mexico join Germany as an ally and invade the United States, retaking Texas and the western states. While the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare was the actual cause of the war, the Zimmerman Telegraph turned popular opinion in favor of America joining the war, and President Wilson requested Congress declare war on Germany and Austria. However, this was going to be more than just a war to protect commerce. Wilson and House had been preparing a grander design for American intervention in the war. House and Wilson believed that the war had been imposed, quote, on the peoples of Europe by the monarchies and their aristocracies, and therefore a post-war settlement had to include the destruction of the German and Austro-Hungarian empires and the creation of a number of new democratic states in Central Europe. In order to flesh out the details of this vision, Wilson asked House to assemble a group of experts. The resulting project was known as the Inquiry, and the plan it created became the basis for Wilson's 14 points and for his principal proposals at the Versailles Conference. The Inquiry ultimately placed 126 scholars on its payroll. Although each of them had substantial credentials, hardly any of them was an expert on European politics. Most of them had a general or even specific knowledge of history, but none of them knew much of anything about the Balkan states, the Ottoman Empire, or the intricacies of nationalism and ethnic politics. In fact, when it came to the Middle East, the inquiry more or less gave up and had no real recommendations. They knew nothing about the vagaries and specifics of how Europeans had conducted power since the age of Napoleon, and ignored the fact that, quote, the monarchies and their aristocracies included a number of their allies, including Great Britain and Italy, who had borne the horrors of fighting for three years up to that point, and would have an opinion on the ultimate peace. House was the key voice, though, to the inquiry's recommendations, which informed the 14 points, which informed 
form the 14 points of peace, which Wilson demanded. These would remake the old world and the new. He was Wilson's loudest voice to the British and French that these would be the guiding principles to peace. In November 1918, after the German army was finally broken by the combined might of the British, French, and American allied armies, and after German society had broken down and deposed the Kaiser, an armistice settled on the battlefield. The war was over, but the fight for peace was just starting. Immediately, Wilson, House, and three others traveled to Paris to the high-level negotiations at Versailles beginning in December of 1918. Most critically, House shared Wilson's vision of a League of Nations, and at the conference, he did as much as anyone to make this vision a reality. House was the second in command to Wilson, and when Wilson departed France in mid-February 1919, exhausted at having to deal with his peers, he left House in charge. In the president's absence, House tried to do what always worked for him. He made deals, compromising where necessary to gain the other party's agreement and creating the best possible arrangements he could when dealing with the powerful personalities and passions at play among the victorious allies. Although House kept Wilson informed as he went along, it doesn't appear that Wilson really understood what House was agreeing to do. And so basically what he agreed to was that the British and the French— and the Italians kind of redrew all the maps in throughout the areas where the, the Germans and the Austrians and the Ottoman Turks had been had had been. So if you've seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, uh, where, where sort of the the Arabs are kind of cast aside and the 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 line the British and the French kind of take over the lands, uh, Damascus and and Israel and and Iraq in those areas, that's that's sort of the thing we're talking about, where House agreed to this mandate system where the big powers would still control everything, whereas Wilson had understood and thought he'd left under, left instructions that House was to, you know, support uh, nationalism and people having self-determination among those areas. When Wilson returned to Versailles in mid-March and really looked at the detail of House's deals, he was shocked by what he viewed as the betrayal of his high ideals for peace. His wife Edith had been in his ear when he'd been at home, some say whispering that Wilson could not trust House, and it seemed what she said had come true. Although Colonel House continued to work on specific matters, such as the re-establishment of the Polish state, he never again acted as the chief U.S. delegate, and the intimate friendship between House and Wilson came to an abrupt end. And when the president and his delegation returned to the U.S., they set about the task of trying to secure Senate approval for the Treaty of Versailles and for joining the League of Nations, which was the peacekeeping body, which was the key, which was the peacekeeping body envisioned by Wilson and House within the 14 points. This was institutionalized by the Treaty of Versailles. Unfortunately for the president, the Senate was now controlled by Republicans who had mostly been cut out of both the war effort and the peace effort by Wilson. House had argued that influential senator House had argued that influential Republican senator Henry Cabot Lodge should be involved in the peace commission so that support for the treaty could be assured in the Senate, which had to approve any treaty the president signed. Now while Wilson had a bare majority of senators who would vote to approve the, the treaty, Constitutionally, he needed a two-thirds majority, and there was enough opposition among Republicans as well as anti-English and pro-German Democrats that the measure soon stalled. In November 1919, House wrote to Wilson, urging the president to accept a compromise brokered by Lodge to approve the treaty with reservations. 
However, by this time, it was clear that Wilson wasn't listening to House or practically anyone. In September, Wilson had suffered a major stroke, and Edith had assumed total control of all access to the president. Edith disliked most of Wilson's inner circle, but she especially disliked House. Through Edith, Wilson refused any compromise on the acceptance of the treaty and the country's role in the League of Nations, and so the treaty died, unratified in the Senate. Without the leader of the New World, the League became powerless and ineffective, and the effects of the treaty and weakness of the League were direct contributors to the Second World War. I actually uh, recall this part of the story from an excellent episode of Drunk History. Wilson served out his term in 1920, largely controlled by his wife, with all decisions delegated to cabinet posts. He did so, though, without Colonel House. House returned to New York City and returned to his social and political circles. He spent many years feuding with Edith Wilson after President Wilson's death, defending his role from attacks that she and her supporters made on him. He was denied access to Wilson's 1924 funeral, but publicly supported Wilson and his decisions until the end of his life. Through the 1920s and 30s, House remained active in Democratic Party politics, continuing to advise that the United States should support and join the League of Nations. And in the early 1930s, he advised a new rising star of the Democratic Party, New York's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt had served in the Naval Department under Wilson and had also been a firm supporter of both the treaty and of the League of Nations. When Roosevelt was elected president in 1932, the elderly House provided inputs on FDR's cabinet choices. He quickly became disillusioned with the New Deal, but he only did so privately. By the mid-1930s, he'd grown tired of politics and of society, and he finally retreated into quiet retirement. He died in 1938 and was buried in his family plot at Greenwood Cemetery in Houston, Texas. Following his death, condolences were sent to his family from a remarkable list of international leaders, including President Roosevelt as well as former British Prime Minister and Treaty of Versailles signer David Lloyd George. House is a fascinating character in that he predates the extreme political figures of the later years of the 20th century. There had always been power brokers and kingmakers, but most of them either moved themselves into political office eventually or stayed completely in the background, moving on to new projects. House was one of the very first political operatives to follow their charges into their political roles. He helped shape the policies of the Wilson administration for good and bad, and many of his concessions as leader of the American delegation at Versailles while Wilson was gone would set the stage for the fundamental changes in the world order of the time. Today, there are a few memorials to Colonel House, including a small farming town in central Texas named M House, but few are as fitting as the statue of the mysterious colonel erected in Skarzewski Park in Warsaw, honoring one of the men so critical in restoring the Polish state to existence. And I am only about 72% confident that I pronounced that Polish word correctly. No, it sounded pretty good. Yeah, you nailed it. That sounded good. Nailing it, Scott. That's why we call you the voice of Texas history. (laughs) That's why we give you all the the ethnic-sounding words. Mm. So this guy had a good run. Yeah, I mean, I, he 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 really did, and he has a fat. It's again, we've talked about this last week, but this is a guy that went from 
just a normal Texas landowner and businessman to being a political machine boss, basically, in the in the state of Texas. You know, getting people elected to the governorship, getting people elected to the governor's office in Texas. But then he became something different. Like we said, there had always been bosses. There had always been power brokers and political bosses and machine runners in politics. But when he threw his support behind Wilson and really began advising him, he took a role that really had never existed before in that he was an advisor, a policy and political advisor to the president and and sort of an ace troubleshooter in a lot of ways of – just a person without, uh, you know, in the British system, they call it a, a minister without portfolio in the British cabinet. And he really didn't have an official job. He just was kind of plugged in wherever wherever the president really saw the best need for him. So that that and that kind of role does exist today. And it's existed. There's a lot of famous people who've had that role uh, in the years uh, in in the different administrations, especially as we get more recently uh, in the modern White House. And he really sort of invented that role in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, going through this and, and following along, and it's still kind of crazy to me to think that the, the president, first of all, was away from um, the, the seat of government for months <laughs> at a time. For I mean, nearly I, a year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I understand that it was a different time and that, you know, the, the easy... Yeah you know, jet travel that we have these days is taken for granted. But, you know, that's only, you know, a little more than half a century ago. And that that's just, it's mind boggling to me. Well, I guess it's closer to it's a whole century, century a whole ago now. Yeah, as of this year. Um, no, he had, now he had got like, on a battleship and he, yeah, he yeah, no, I mean, it's just, <laughs> so the fact that, you know, the president, first of all, was away from, from the, Washington D.C. for so long, but then he would he left and you know and left this guy that doesn't even really have an official office in charge of the negotiations. Um, really speaks to the uh, the power and the trust that House had. Yeah, well, he left. He also left right right during a midterm election, which you know the guns fell silent November eleventh, nineteen eighteen, which this is our century centenary anniversary of the armistice of the First World War. And and Wilson immediately got on a ship and sailed to to France. You know there was it was either right right it was right after a midterm election where where they, he'd lost control of the Senate, and yet he still yeah. got on that ship and went over to Europe to to be part of this this really remarkable peace process this this treaty of Versailles process. I think the interesting thing. So you know, I just think it's fascinating. That he that that House actually did these things. Now there's the jury is even a hundred years later still out on how effective he truly was. I think in ways he was effective and he was prescient in some ways of you know he predicted that the war was inevitable that we would we would have to we would have to join the war. Um, but um, in other ways his he he made a lot of missteps in terms of. Of thinking that the way we, way he did things in American politics and especially in Texas politics uh, could be done and should be done in in European politics, but he also was a prag pragmatist, whereas Roosevelt really was. I mean, sorry, Wilson really was 
uh, very high-minded idealist. And that and that's been the criticism of Wilson during the Treaty of Versailles negotiations is that he stood on he stood on principle in a lot of ways and and failed to recognize or even obstinately refused to recognize the 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 demands and the needs of the 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 other allied powers the victorious allies and he, and they also failed to understand that France had lost millions of men England had lost millions of men Italy had lost several million men they they'd lost millions of men America's losses were in the hundreds of thousands the low hundreds of thousands we lost more from the flu than we did in combat during the war but that that there was a vengeful element to Britain and France and Italy in this in this process and they were going to get their blood from Germany one way or the other and and Wilson really kind of refused to 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 see that and I think house sort of allowed you know compromise just for the sake of you know the ends you know meeting you know the ends of getting the the peace treaty signed with as many of the of their aims as possible whereas Wilson wanted all of the aims met yeah. well, well let me ask this question just because we're talking about house today i mean you know i think wilson is known for clearly his role as president of the war father of the progressive movement and that things but would you say that that what house let me put it this way would you say that what house really kind of invented in being this you know somewhere between a kingmaker and a worm tongue uh depending on your view <laughs> of history <laughs> if your name's edith um do you think like his was a a more important and lasting legacy on modern politics or just different. I think it is, and and this is why I think so. FDR sort of had a had a guy like that as well uh, in Harry Hopkins, who did become uh, a cabinet member in very various positions. But he was more like Henry Kissinger in that he floated to different positions, different cabinet positions where he was needed. And and FDR actually had a brain trust that he surrounded himself with when he came into office. And and part of this was just because of the crisis of the Depression, um, that he wanted to have the brightest minds around him to solve this problem. But he took advice from Colonel House. He, he sought out Colonel House's advice. And a lot of the things... Really, the, the the genesis of the New Deal is in in Wilson's progressivism and in House's some of House's theories. Now, House felt Roosevelt went too far uh, with the New Deal, but but in a lot of ways, of modern politics, American politics really stems from the Roosevelt administration, from the FDR administration, and 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 in the notion that that the government there's there's people that are just there to think up policy and to implement policy not into you know to the business of usual politics but actual political change into the system and i think that really starts that does really start in a lot of ways with colonel house in that role and so when you get you know you have a you have a definitive line either in reaction to or inspiration from the fdr administration you go into Truman, you go into Eisenhower. Uh, you know, Eisenhower was a reaction too. Then you have the Kennedy and the Johnson era, where where they were, t- were making new versions of the New Deal, and and in the Nixon administration, Nixon was surrounded himself with policy advisors for good or for ill. Uh, you know, Haldeman and and all these guys with the in the Watergate situation were a lot of were policy advisors. They were advisors to the president, and so. 
that I think that's where House's real legacy is, and it's kind of a hidden legacy, but his real legacy is he was really that first political operative in the highest position, the, the, the person next to the president saying, this is how we can, you know, this, these are the, this is how we can implement the ideas and the policies that you have. You know, this is here's my inputs into those things. Uh, not a person that is that has a position of specific role and job in the in the government, but a but an at large role. That that really started with with Colonel House. And and it's not all good. There's not all good stuff. No, no, I I, I, the, I didn't the, say the worst, what was the best yeah, some thing of the, for America. I just well, said what yeah. do you think is a bigger legacy? Because yeah, it's I, like I don't, I you look at a president's yeah, legacy, but I, I think like this guy, you go, wow, he just he blazed a trail, and maybe not for the better. That that there are paths to power that don't require well, an official title, which is yeah. again, it's the sort of yeah, and, and there's. Yeah, there's the high-mindedness of there's the high-mindedness and positiveness of the, the League of Nation and the 14 points of peace. There's there's also you know Wilson was Wilson had some very unrepentantly racist policies and you know the the government w- and the military was definitively segregated during the Wilson administration and you know this was this is like the nadir of race relations in this country. So and and I really wasn't able to find much about where House's position on that was other than just the general you know. The, the I guess the casual racism of the of the of the time in society, uh, he probably held those same positions in in some way or another. But um, you know, so it's not it's not all happiness and light. But I think it's just from a from a purely process perspective and a purely just a historical importance. That's really where House's importance lays. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, my. I was going to say, my impression is that um, on that subject is that uh, maybe House didn't so much as um, overtly express racism, but it was just a general, you know, the powerful people yeah. should be controlling things and then everyone else should just be happy, you know, yeah. and, and along the line, I'm not saying that he wasn't, didn't hold those racial views, just that it seems like they might have been subsumed by his uh more um his other yeah yeah his other classist view of things yeah i agree but it's still a fascinating character i think people should know more about him i mean you know whether whether you like steve bannon or not you can draw a definitive line from steve bannon all the way back to edward house you can draw an definitive line from from david axelrod or carl rove or kenneth o'donnell from the from, uh, who was played magnificently by uh, Kevin Costner in the movie 13 Days um, to Edward House. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get over to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I am Scotticus. If you're a kingmaker and you'd like to make this the number one podcast in the world, then go out there and tell your friends all about us and leave a review on iTunes because that helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, 
Texans wants you anyway.